Let me tell you a story, podcast number 97. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. I'll begin this podcast by reading another excerpt from Winds of Wyoming. Steve will follow with a short story by Mark Twain titled The McWilliamses and the Burglar Alarm. I'll also read from Lisa Buffalo's latest book, The Fortune, and Steve will finish with more kid chuckles, which is always a fun way to end the podcast. I'll be finishing Chapter 30 today in Winds of Wyoming, and I'm going to back up a little bit from last reading in the last podcast to kind of make sense of where I'm starting. The Duncans won't sell, Tara said. Daddy has asked again and again and again, but they refused to consider an offer from us. So, she held out her hands. The obvious solution is for me to marry Michael. How can I be your partner if you're married to him? Ramsay took a long swig from the cup. You'll have to hide in the hills until the heat dies down. Eventually, though, we'll make you ranch manager, she winked. Hmm, he pursed his lips. Jerry Ramsey, ranch foreman. Sounded good, but he was getting sleepy. Before that, she said, you'd have to do your part. What's that? Make sure your Pennsylvania girlfriend is out of the picture. What does she have to do with the plan? Everything. He peered at her through narrowed eyelids. Meaning? Meaning she's after Michael in a big way. You sure? Even if he didn't want Nielsen anymore, the thought of her cheating on him infuriated him. Tara nodded. All I have to do is get past the old lady, right? Shouldn't be a problem for a tough guy like you. What do you expect me to do with Nielsen? Whatever it takes to eliminate her from my life, Tara made a face, as if the thought of Kate was distasteful. Before or after I moved to the cabin. Before you move to the cabin and after I bleach your hair. He touched his head. No, you won't. You're a one-in man, Jer. Tara took his cup. You need a new look and a new name. Another name change. Who was he, really? Not a ranch foreman, yet. And no longer a correctional officer. He was a rolling stone, a drifter, a rambling kind of cowboy, now that he was out west. Was there a name that fit him? Maybe he should use his birth name. If only he could remember what it was. He could hear his mother's voice calling Chester. But Chester what? Did he have a middle name? Or a last name? You said your plan has two glitches. Ramsey belched and rearranged the pillows. What's the other one? My soon-to-be mother-in-law. He lifted an eyebrow. No doubt she'll try to stop the merger. I take it you want both her and Nielsen out of your hair. She nodded. 
you got the picture. He handed her the tray. Her glitches were too much to think about when he was so tired. Sliding downward, he pulled a pillow over his head. Blinded by the morning sunlight, it took a moment for Mike to realize it was Bernie Caldwell who stood at the lobby with another officer. Maybe he should start charging them for time on his property, like he charged the guests. Caldwell held up a piece of paper. Warrant to search the ranch for illegal substances. The other deputy stood to the side, one hand hovering above the butt of his gun. Mike stared at Caldwell. How did he pull that off? As if reading his mind, Caldwell smirked. The new county judge was none too happy to learn we discovered drugs in one of your cabins. Said they'd found plenty of stashes in the backwoods of New Hampshire, where he hails from. He plans to nip drug dealing in the bud in Carbon County. Mike sighed and motioned them into the lobby. Mind telling me the reason you're starting here? He opened the door that led to their living quarters. Doing some detective work, Caldwell said. You wouldn't happen to know anything about tire tracks and boot prints at Dimple Ford's place, would you? He didn't give Mike a chance to answer. Instead, he looked at his bare feet. I'll need your boots. What am I supposed to wear? Caldwell shrugged, the sneer on his lips matching the arrogant lift of his eyebrow. Try slippers. They're perfect for sloshing through manure. Mike clenched his fists. Last bedroom on the left in the closet. With any luck, Bernie wouldn't find the pair he'd left on the deck the night before. Laura walked from the office to stand behind the counter. Good morning, gentlemen. What brings you here so early? The deputies mumbled a short greeting before walking down the hallway into their home. They have a warrant to search for drugs, the illegal type. Mike picked up a leaf that had dropped from one of their boots. Where did they get the idea we have illegal substances? He rubbed his temples. It was hard to sort things out, but if he didn't tell his mom what was going on, someone else would. God only knew how fast word might spread that the Whispering Pines was a drug haven, and he was a peeping Tom. But he wouldn't tell her that part. Not yet, anyway. Jerry Ramsey awoke feeling better and stronger than he had in days. By the time Tara arrived with orange juice and cereal, he'd washed his face, combed his hair, and changed from hospital pajamas into clothing she'd brought from the motel. You look better this morning, she pulled a chair out from a small table in the corner. I thought of a way to find Nielsen. Really? We can do it from right here. She shook cereal into their bowls and added milk. You sure? Positive. How? She poured juice for both of them. GPS, bring me my laptop. I'll need to access your Wi-Fi. Temple at her side, Kate slowly made her way out of the Rollins Clinic into the sunshine. She stopped and looked at her legs below her shorts. Doesn't that look funny? One brown leg and one white one? Temple laughed. Like a dog I used to have. She squeezed Kate's arm. I'm teasing, sweetie. They'll be the same color soon. How does it feel to have a smaller cast? It feels good to bend my knee and stand again. But you better stay clear so I don't trip you with my crutches. It'll take me a while to get the hang of these things. You still want me to drive by the sheriff's department? Yes, Kate said. I'm curious to see where they put my car and if my boxes are still inside. 
Dimple drove the few blocks to the county buildings. I think the impound area is on the other side. She turned the corner. There it is. Kate had just spotted a red car among the others behind the chain-link fence when Dimple shoved her shoulder. Get down. What? Down. Her tone left no room for argument. Now. Kate flattened her chest against her thighs and gripped the bottom of the seat as Dimple executed a fast, squealing U-turn, zipped a short distance and stopped. The jeep swayed with the abrupt standstill. Okay. You can sit up. Kate straightened and looked out the window. What was that all about? I saw Tara Hughes's Hummer. Couldn't tell if she was in it. Does she have the only yellow Hummer in the state? Kate asked. Probably not, but I bet she has the only one with a license plate that says sexy. Dimple glanced in the rearview mirror. Did you see your car? I think so, but things happen so fast. What do you think Tara is doing at the jail? Visiting Ramsey? Dimple, whose gaze had never left the mirror, shouted, Here she comes! and grabbed a map from the door pocket. Chapter 31 Trapped by the jam driver's side door, Mike waited behind the wheel while Clint helped Mamie Curtis step from Old Blue to the grass below. But Cunningham, who'd ridden with Clint, was already out of the truck. Dressed in camouflage fatigues and combat boots, he stood near the fence, assessing the half-dozen bison who grazed nearby. The mammoth bovines lifted their shaggy heads to study their visitors. Mamie gripped Clint's arm. Why did we stop where there aren't very many buffalo? I picked these cows because they're separate from the main body of the herd. He reached for her sister's hand. We don't want gunshots to disturb the others. Minnie stepped down. He went on. They're near the fence, and they don't have calves at their sides. That will make it easier for you to aim at one animal without others getting in the way of your shot. Plus, it's safer to shoot from outside the fence than inside. Minnie and Mamie gave each other side glances, relief obvious in their exchange. The bison began to graze again. Hands on the steering wheel, Mike watched Buck load his rifle. Thank God Clint had offered to take charge of the hunt. He tagged along only because it was a good excuse to get away from Aunt Judith. True to her promise, she'd arrived yesterday afternoon, in time for the Fourth of July weekend. Breakfast with her had reminded him of oral exams at the university. At six o'clock in the morning, he wasn't prepared for her nonstop questions. How does it feel, Michael, to be the only man in the family, now that your brother and your father are deceased? Are you ready for the responsibility Matt would have shouldered with ease? She stabbed a strawberry from the fruit platter and shook it in his face. Did your mother forget I'm highly allergic to strawberries? Grateful his mom was in the kitchen poaching an egg for Judith, Mike hadn't responded. Then there were the comments stated as fact, with no room for debate. Your father had allergies, too. I firmly believe all the meat and potatoes you eat around here caused his cancer, and ultimately his death. He was way too young and had so much to offer this world. Mike fixed his attention on the Curtis twins. Before his mom pointed it out, he had noticed how they always dressed alike, yet different. Today they wore yellow and green plaid western shirts and green pants. The only dissimilarity he could see was that one wore a yellow neckerchief and hat, while the other had a green scarf and hat. Dressed to kill. He looked at the grazing bison and sighed, three more on the way to the slaughterhouse. But he was ready. The guys had left the loader and the truck in the pasture after they hauled off yesterday's casualty. The processing plant knew to expect several thousand more pounds of buffalo today. 
and the taxidermist was prepared to receive a bison head later in the week. Sliding across the seat, he worked his way out of the pickup to join the hunters clustered at the fence. No sense putting a damper on the outing. If nothing else, the money would help cover the loss from the theft, which brought him to Kate Nielsen and the pinch in his heart every time he thought of her. Why couldn't he forget her? If the documents Tara showed them were authentic, Kate wasn't someone they needed around the ranch, let alone in his life. Her past was seriously flawed. Plus, it was entirely possible she was the one who stole the cash from the office. She had a key. Buck pointed at a big cow. I like the looks of that one, but the others might scatter when I shoot her. Then he aimed his chin at the twins. Those ladies might have trouble getting a good shot. Mike glanced at Minnie and Mamie, who stood by the fence gawking at the bison like children at a zoo. We'll give them time for target practice before they take aim at a buffalo. Who knows where the cows will be by then? The twins had admitted on the way to the pasture that neither of them had fired a gun before. He'd had a feeling they lacked experience and had thrown a couple of hay bales plus a packet of paper targets in the bed of his truck for a possible practice session. If they couldn't hit anything during target practice, he wasn't going to let them shoot at his herd. The hunting party gathered behind Buck, who took his time preparing for the shot. The man obviously knew what he was doing, which gave Mike some comfort. Buck situated the stock so it sat snug against his shoulder and hunkered down, his focus locked on the scope. No one spoke or moved. The quiet was so intense Mike could hear Buck's slow, deliberate breathing. The smell of warm grass and manure wafted around the group. Finally, the Texan pulled the trigger. The cow rocked onto her side, legs flipping in the air as the gunshot's roar reverberated across the pasture. With a wheezing moan, the buffalo wilted onto the prairie floor. The other bison took off running, kicking up clumps of sod behind them. Buck let out a whoop. One bullet and she's mine! Congratulations, Clint pouted his back. Great shot. The McWilliamses and the Burglar Alarm by Mark Twain The conversation drifted smoothly and pleasantly along from weather to crops, from crops to literature, from literature to scandal, from scandal to religion, then took a random jump and landed on the subject of burglar alarms. And now, for the first time, Mr. McWilliams showed feeling. Whenever I perceive this sign on the man's dial, I comprehend it and lapse into silence and give him opportunity to unload his heart. Said he, with but ill-controlled emotion, I do not go one single cent on burglar alarms, Mr. Twain, not a single cent, and I will tell you why. When we were finishing our house, we found we had a little cash left over, on account of the plumber not knowing it. I was for enlightening the heathen with it, for I was always unaccountably down on the heathen somehow, but Mrs. McWilliams said no, let's have a burglar alarm. I agreed to this compromise. I will explain that whenever I want a thing and Mrs. McWilliams wants another thing, and we decide upon the thing that Mrs. McWilliams wants, as we always do, she calls that a compromise. Very well, the man came up from New York and put in the alarm and charged $325 for it and said we could sleep without uneasiness now. So we did for a while, say a month. Then one night we smelled smoke and I was advised to get up and see what the matter was. 
I lit a candle and started toward the stairs and met a burglar coming out of the room with a basket of tinware, which he had mistaken for solid silver in the dark. He was smoking a pipe. I said, my friend, we do not allow smoking in this room. He said he was a stranger and could not be expected to know the rules of the house. Said he had been in many houses just as good as this one, and it had never been objected to before. He added that as far as his experience went, such rules had never been considered to apply to burglars anyway. I said, smoke along then, if it is the custom, though I think that the conceding of a privilege to a burglar which is denied to a bishop is a conspicuous sign of the looseness of the times. But waiving all that, what business have you to be entering this house in this furtive and clandestine way without ringing the burglar alarm? He looked confused and ashamed and said with embarrassment, I beg a thousand pardons. I did not know you had a burglar alarm, else I would have rung it. I beg you will not mention it where my parents may hear of it, for they are old and feeble and such a seemingly wanton breach of the hallowed conventionalities of our Christian civilization might all too rudely sunder the frail bridge which hangs darkling between the pale and evanescent present and the solemn great deeps of the eternities. May I trouble you for a match? I said, Your sentiments do you honor, but if you will allow me to say it, metaphor is not your best hold. Spare your thigh. This kind light only on the box, and seldom there, in fact, if my experience be trusted. But to return to the business, how did you get in here? Through a second-story window. It was even so. I redeemed the tinware at pawnbroker's rates, less cost of advertising, bade the burglar good night, closed the window after him, and retired to headquarters to report. Next morning we sent for the burglar alarm man, and he came up and explained that the reason the alarm did not go off was that no part of the house but the first floor was attached to the alarm. This was simply idiotic. One might as well have no armor on at all in battle as to have it only on his legs. The expert now put the whole second story on the alarm, charged $300 for it, and went his way. By and by, one night, I found a burglar in the third story, about to start down a ladder with a lot of miscellaneous property. My first impulse was to crack his head with a billiard cue, but my second was to refrain from this attention because he was between me and the cue rack. The second impulse was plainly the soundest, so I refrained and proceeded to compromise. I redeemed the property at former rates, after deducting 10% for use of ladder, it being my ladder, and next day we sent down for the expert once more, and had the third story attached to the alarm for $300. By this time, the enunciator had grown to formidable dimensions. It had 47 tags on it, marked with the names of the various rooms and chimneys, and it occupied the space of an ordinary wardrobe. The gong was the size of a washball and was placed above the head of our bed. There was a wire from the house to the coachman's quarter in the stable and a noble gong alongside his pillow. We should have been comfortable now, but for one defect. Every morning at five, the cook opened the kitchen door in the way of business and rip went that gong. The first time this happened, I thought the last day was come sure. I didn't think it in bed, no, but out of it. For the first effect of that frightful gong is to hurl you across the house and slam you against the wall, and then curl you up and squirm you like a spider on a stove lid till somebody shuts the kitchen door. 
In solid fact, there is no clamor that is even remotely comparable to the dire clamor which that gong makes. Well, this catastrophe happened every morning regularly at five o'clock and lost us three hours sleep. For, mind you, when that thing wakes you, it doesn't merely wake you in spots. It wakes you all over, conscience and all. And you are good for 18 hours of wide awakeness subsequently. 18 hours of the very most inconceivable wide awakeness that you ever experienced in your life. A stranger died on our hands one time, and we vacated and left him in our room overnight. Did that stranger wait for the general judgment? No, sir. He got up at five the next morning in the most prompt and unostentatious way. I knew he would. I knew it mighty well. He collected his life insurance and lived happy ever after, for there was plenty of proof as to the perfect squareness of his death. Well, we were gradually fading toward a better land on account of the daily loss of sleep, so we finally had the expert up again, and he ran a wire to the outside of the door and placed a switch there, whereby Thomas, the butler, always made one little mistake. He switched the alarm off at night when he went to bed and switched it on again at daybreak in the morning, just in time for the cook to open the kitchen door and enable that gong to slam us across the house, sometimes breaking a window with one or the other of us. At the end of a week, we recognized that this switch business was a delusion and a snare. We also discovered that a band of burglars had been lodging in the house the whole time, not exactly to steal, for there wasn't much left now, but to hide from the police, for they were hot-pressed, and they shrewdly judged that the detectives would never think of a tribe of burglars taking sanctuary in a house notoriously protected by the most imposing and elaborate burglar alarm in America. Sent down for the expert again, and this time he struck the most dazzling idea. He fixed the thing so that opening the kitchen door would take off the alarm. It was a noble idea, and he charged accordingly. But you already foresee the result. I switched on the alarm every night at bedtime, no longer trusting on Thomas's frail memory. And as soon as the lights were out, the burglars walked in at the kitchen door, thus taking the alarm off without waiting for the cook to do it in the morning. You see how aggravatingly we were situated. For months we couldn't have any company, not a spare bed in the house, all occupied by burglars. Finally, I got a procure of my own. The expert answered the call and ran another ground wire to the stable and established a switch there so that the coachman could put on and take off the alarm. That worked first rate and a season of peace ensued during which we got to inviting company once more and enjoying it. But by and by, the irrepressible alarm invented a new kink. One winter's night, we were flung out of bed by the sudden music of that awful gong. And when we hobbled to the annunciator, turned up the gas and saw the word nursery exposed, Mrs. McWilliams fainted dead away, and I came precious near doing the same thing myself. I seized my shotgun and stood timing the coachman whilst that appalling buzzer went on. I knew that his gong had flung him out, too, and that he would be along with his gun as soon as he could jump into his clothes. When I judged that the time was ripe, I crept to the room next to the nursery, glanced through the window, and saw the dim outline of the coachman in the yard below, standing at present arms and waiting for a chance. Then I hopped into the nursery and fired, and in the same instant the coachman fired at the red flash of my gun. Both of us were successful, 
I crippled a nurse, and he shot off all my back hair. We turned up the gas and telephoned for a surgeon. There was not a sign of a burglar, and no window had been raised. One glass was absent, but that was where the coachman's charge had come through. Here was a fine mystery. A burglar alarm going off at midnight of its own accord, and not a burglar in the neighborhood. The expert answered the usual call and explained that it was a false alarm. Said it was easily fixed, so he overhauled the nursery window, charged a remunerative figure for it, and departed. What we suffered from false alarms for the next three years, no stylographic pen can describe. During the next three months, I always flew with my gun to the room indicated, and the coachman always sallied forth with his battery to support me. But there was never anything to shoot at. Windows all tight and secure. We always sent down for the expert next day, and he fixed those particular windows so they would keep quiet a week or so, and always remembered to send us a bill like this. Wire, 15 cents. Nipple, 75 cents. Two hours labor, dollar fifty. Wax, 47 cents. Tape, 34 cents. Screws, 15 cents. Recharging battery, 98 cents. Three hours labor, $2.25. String, 2 cents. Lard, 66 cents. Pond's extract, $1.25. Springs at 50 cents, $2. Railroad fares, $7.25. At length, a perfectly natural thing came about. After we had answered three or four hundred false alarms, to wit, we stopped answering them. Yes, I simply rose up calmly when slammed across the house by the alarm, calmly inspected the enunciator, took note of the room indicated, and then calmly disconnected that room from the alarm and went back to bed as if nothing had happened. Moreover, I left that room off permanently and did not send for the expert. Well, it goes without saying that in the course of time all the rooms were taken off and the entire machine was out of service. It was at this unprotected time that the heaviest calamity of all happened. The burglars walked in one night and carried off the burglar alarm. Yes, sir, every hide and hair of it. Ripped it out, tooth and nail, springs, bells, gongs, battery and all. They took 150 miles of copper wire. They just cleaned her out, bag and baggage, and never left us a vestige of her to swear at. Swear by, I mean. We had a time of it to get to her back, but we accomplished it finally, for money. The alarm firm said that what we needed now was to have her put in right, with their new patent springs in the windows to make false alarms impossible, and their new patent clock attached to take off and put on the alarm morning and night without human assistance. That seemed a good scheme. They promised to have the whole thing finished in ten days. They began work, and we left for the summer. They worked a couple of days, then they left for summer, after which the burglars moved in and began their summer vacation. When we returned in the fall, the house was as empty as a beer closet in the premises where painters had been at work. We refurnished and then sent down to hurry up the expert. He came up and finished the job and said, now this clock is set to put on the alarm every night at 10 and take it off every morning at 5.45. All you've got to do is to wind her up every week and then leave her alone. She will take care of the alarm herself.
After that, we had a most tranquil season during three months. The bill was prodigious, of course, and I had said I would not pay it until the new machinery had proved itself to be flawless. The time stipulated was three months, so I paid the bill, and the very next day the alarm went to buzzing like 10,000 bee swarms at 10 o'clock in the morning. I turned the hands around 12 hours, according to instructions, and this took off the alarm. But there was another hitch at night, and I had to set her ahead 12 hours once more to get her to put the alarm on again. That sort of nonsense went on a week or two. Then the expert came up and, and put in a new clock. He came up every three months during the next three years and put in a new clock. But it was always a failure. His clocks all had the same perverse defect. They would put the alarm on in the daytime, and they would not put it on at night. And if you forced it on yourself, they would take it off again the minute your back was turned. Now there is the history of that burglar alarm. Everything just as it happened. Nothing extenuated and not set down in malice. Yes, sir. And when I had slept nine years with burglars and maintained an expensive burglar alarm the whole time, for their protection, not mine, and at my sole cost, for not a cent would I ever get them to contribute, I just said to Mrs. McWilliams that I had had enough of that kind of pie. So with her full consent, I took the whole thing out and traded it off for a dog and shot the dog. I don't know what you think about it, Mr. Twain, but I think those things are made solely in the interest of the burglars. Yes, sir, a burglar alarm combines in its person all that is objectionable about a fire, a riot, and a harem, and at the same time had none of the compensating advantages of one sort or another that customarily belong with that combination. Goodbye. I get off here. Lisa Phillips' latest novel is titled... The Fortune. Chapter 1. Joy Davidson stared out the glass coffee shop door and spotted the lime green, older than dirt, immaculate jeep. Kristen's vehicle glowed like a neon sign. Then again, everything her best friend did brought attention. Kristen exited her ride and, as usual, stopped traffic. Men waiting in cars gawked as she walked by in long legs, covered in tight jeans, high-heeled boots, and a turtleneck that hugged every curve of her curvy body. Joy sighed as she surveyed her own somewhat clean sweatshirt, worn jeans, and tennis shoes. When God handed out voluptuous bodies, hers was not on the list. Kristen had blossomed at sixteen and took all the hills which had left Joy standing in the flat prairie. A man in a business suit bumped Joy as he hurried to open the door for Kristen. Kristen thanked the man who stood at attention in the open doorway. Most men didn't actually stare and drool. They keep their heads down or pretend to look intently at anything other than Kristen. However, out of the corner of their eyes, they watched her every move. Yet, her friend remained totally oblivious to their admiration. Sorry I'm late, Kristen gave Joy a quick hug and stood in line to order. Brandon stopped me as I came out of my apartment and kept talking about the weather. Poor Brandon. He'd lived next door to Kristen for the last year and had tried everything to get her attention. He's probably just looking for an excuse to see you. Joy joined her friend in line and stood in Kristen's shadow. Well, this time you're right. He actually asked me out this weekend. Joy had to force her mouth not to open in shock. He finally asked you out? 
She smiled at the thought. Brannon was super nice and a great-looking guy. What did you say? I told him I was leaving to work on a client's home in Sun Valley. Ah, uh, poor guy. Yeah, he actually paled. Joy imagined Brandon holding out his heart and watching it wither. Would you have gone out with him? Definitely, but he didn't say anything else, just kind of staggered away. You broke his heart. Oh, I hope not, Kristen put her hand on her chest. He can ask me out when I get back. He could have asked me out a year ago and I would have gone out with him. Guys are strange creatures, aren't they? Joy nodded in agreement. She hadn't figured out any of them. A few boyfriends were scattered in her background, but nothing serious, and nothing that helped her decipher anything about the species called man. A businessman in front of her stepped aside and motioned with his hand. Please, you ladies go ahead. I'm still thinking. They thanked him and both stepped to the counter. Joy shook her head as the guy moved behind them and stood in the puddle of his own drool. The only one who drooled for her was her dog. After ordering and receiving their coffee, they walked to a small table in the back. Kristen turned to Joy. You seem down this morning. I'm okay. Joy stared out the window at a young mom holding her little girl's hand as they skipped down the sidewalk. She squeezed the bridge of her nose, willing away tears. Twenty-four years ago, her parents had been killed in a car wreck. Losing your family when you're only two wasn't fair. She blew out a breath and tried to think of something else. I've just been thinking. Well, stop that, Kristen sat straight and beamed her smile. I've got some great news. Joy shook off her mood and leaned forward. What's your news? Roger Thomas. Kristen sat there with a grin that said Joy should read her mind. The actor? Yes. Kristen's face beamed, megawatted. He's my client. That's who was in Sun Valley. The famous, latest leading man, actor, Roger? Gorgeous guy, Roger? You're going to work on his house? Kristen nodded. Can you believe it? He called my office yesterday evening. I couldn't wait to tell you this morning. I'll leave soon and stay at my aunt's house. Can you come with me? Joy cringed at the thought. The last time she tried to help with the project, she'd wound up dropping a vase on a client's toe, which just happened to be a very rich, socialite client. No can do. I've got to get ready for the spring rush. People are getting antsy to plant now that the snow is melting on the mountains. Oh, good grief. They have at least two weeks before it's safe to put things in the ground. Come on, we'll have fun. I really wish I could, but I can't. Kristen sat back and crossed her arms. I knew you wouldn't, but we'd have so much fun together. You'll do really great without me, especially since I can't decorate my way out of a paper bag. True, but we always have fun. Kristen steepled her perfectly manicured fingers. Why are you so glum? I don't know. Joy avoided her friend's gaze. Maybe it's because my birthday's next week. You shouldn't be down about that. Twenty-six is still young. Kristen grinned her mischievous grin. I've already bought you something. Thank you for the gift, but I really hoped life would be different. I know what you mean, said Kristen. I thought I'd be living in Switzerland and married to a baron. You've been to Europe more times than I can count, Joy said. It's so great over there. I love the towering mountains that take your breath away. Kristen punctuated her statement with a deep breath. Joy twirled the last remnants of her coffee. She hadn't been out of Idaho more than two times, once to visit a college friend who moved to Texas, and the other to drive into Canada just to say she'd left the country. Her life was safe, 
boring and downright dull. I'm worried about you, Kristen flipped a napkin at her. Birthdays usually are a bright spot for you. It's not that. Remember growing up, we had all those dreams about adventures? Kristen leaned forward. Spies, baby. Her voice took on a tone of a conspirator. Traveling the world, working with James Bond, moving secret documents through underground organizations. Careful, someone might be watching. Joy grinned and did a quick survey of the room. Don't worry. I sprayed my anti-spy spray when I stepped inside. Speaking of spies... Have you seen Eric? Joyce squelched a tiny, unwelcome jump in her heartbeat. Kristen's older brother had grown way too handsome, and his chocolate-brown eyes melted a place in her heart that had grown far too cold. Yes, he stops by every few days. Kristen leaned toward her. And? And what? Joy adjusted in her seat, trying to stifle her smile. Eric had always been and always would be a good friend. Throughout the years, they had kept in touch through phone calls and emails, but since he'd moved back to the area, something seemed different. He's always been interested in you, said Kristen, but I think you've moved up several notches. Joy's heart did a backflip and quivered. Eric is your brother, which kind of makes him like my brother. The thought of anything more was strange, yet oddly compelling. If Eric hadn't been so annoying during their teen years, maybe he would have been someone she would have dated. Not that he ever asked her out. Kristen grinned. You know, with him back in town, we could start doing crazy things like we used to. He can be our bodyguard for fun road trips. We could go camping again in the wilderness, hike mountains, whitewater raft, or fly to some fun destination. We can do that without him. True, but you got to admit, he makes things more entertaining. Annoying is more like it. He pestered me to death before he left for college. He pestered you because he loves you. Loves me? Ha! He tormented me. Joy let loose her smile. His torments were always enjoyable. That was just a sign of his affection. You know what guys do. You watch. The fun has only begun. I just know this is going to be your year. Good things are coming for both of us. Haven't we said the same thing every year since we graduated from high school? Well, maybe adventure isn't what we thought. Eyes focused in the distance. Kristen sat back in her chair. Maybe it's about being content where you live being happy right where you are. We both create things in our own way. Maybe it's not the wildlife we dreamed about, but for the most part, we enjoy ourselves. Getting rather philosophical this morning, aren't you? said Joy. Kristen sat straight in her chair. Are you impressed? I've been reading classic literature. I think I liked you better when you watched cartoons, said Joy. Tsk, tsk. Oh, you're just grumpy because it's been gray the last week. Kristen pointed to the window, and a guy passing outside grinned big and waved. The sun is shining and spring is coming. Pretty soon customers will be flocking in the doors, buying all your little plant babies. Sunshine, springtime, and new growth definitely makes me happier, said Joy. You need to come see some of the new peonies. Definitely. I was planning on having you put together a basket for me to take when I go meet Roger. My clients always love your work. A trill signaled, and Kristen looked at her phone. Just a sec. Need to answer this text. She typed at lightning speed, her manicured nails clicking away. Better run, but I'll stop by this evening with dinner from the Thai place. Joy said goodbye to Kristen, then walked to the back where she'd parked. Her grandfather's truck had been bequeathed to her along with the nursery. The hand-painted Davidson's nursery sign faded by weather and time. 
Maybe she'd have Kristen work her art magic and revitalize the colors. Checking her cell phone, Joy hopped into the driver's seat. She rolled down her windows and took a deep breath of fresh air. Her cell phone signaled three missed calls, two from her buyers, one unknown. With spring officially on the calendar, orders would hopefully roll in and life would get busy. She put her key in the ignition and before backing out, checked over her shoulder. A black SUV with tinted windows rolled past. Joy chuckled to herself, thinking of the earlier conversations about spies. Idaho wasn't exactly a playground for international secrets. Wait! A man's muffled voice came from beside her vehicle. She leaned out her window. A young guy wearing jeans and a flannel shirt crouched next to her truck. She hit the lock button and reached to roll up the window. He half stood, his gaze darting to the right and to the left. She couldn't tell if he was scared or goofy. Wait! I'm not going to hurt you. Take this. With a flick of his wrist, he tossed in a fortune cookie that landed on her lap. You'll know what it needs to be done. Seriously? A cookie? Joy followed the mystery man's gaze behind them. What do you mean? A black SUV backed up, rolled to a stop, and parked two spaces away. Tinted windows blocked her view to see inside. Cookie Guy turned and ran. The back doors to the SUV opened. Two men wearing dark business suits and sunglasses took chase after the mystery man. Joy grabbed her phone as she rolled up her window. Should she call 911? And say what? Help, police. A strange man threw a cookie in my truck. She could just imagine the reply. And how old are you, little girl? The SUV backed out and maneuvered behind her, blocking her exit. She couldn't even see through the front window. Who tinted front windows? Way too creepy. Joy stared at the cookie. Should she eat the evidence? She speed-dialed Kristen. The phone went straight to voicemail. The mystery vehicle crept away, paused before turning the corner, then drove down the street. What was she supposed to do? She couldn't call the police and say she might have seen a crime. Joy looked for anyone who might have seen what happened. No people in the back lot, no windows in back of the shop, and the guy in the suit creeps were nowhere to be seen. Too weird. Maybe one of the hidden camera things set her up, and everybody was hiding in the coffee shop laughing hysterically. She would check with Mr. Dixon when she got back to the garden center. His early years in the military might be helpful. He always told her to pay attention to her surroundings. Why didn't she look for the license plate of the SUV? Wait a minute. What was in the cookie? She double-checked the doors. The cookie sat on the seat next to her. A tiny piece of paper stuck out the end. Without breaking the cookie, she pulled out the paper and stared at the writing. On one side, Fortune Waits. On the other, in gold pen, were handwritten numbers. 43.8262 N, 115.8325 W. All right, time for some kid chuckles. Here's a conversation between the threesome. Brady to Elisa. Yes, sir. Toby to Brady. You don't say yes, sir, to girls. You say, yes, gal. Elisa to Toby. No, Toby, that's not right. It's yes, ma'am. Toby heard Chuck Swindoll on the radio say transform and said to me, that's like transformer. I asked if he knew what it meant. And Toby said, Yes, it means that God changes your life. Lisa, I have the hickeys. I need a hickey cure. 
and Toby's memory verse, Do Good to All People, Elations 610. Elated to be with you on this podcast. It's time to go. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.